0: Well, hello, everyone. You might be surprised not to see Steve up the front. Has anyone, has anyone seen the TV series Designated Survivor? Has anyone? Yes, Jeanette has. Someone up the back. This is the premise. When a mysterious attack kills the president and wipes out everyone in the line of succession, Thomas Kirkman, a lonely cabinet ma- minister, is forced to rise to the occasion as the designated survivor. Today, a mysterious illness has wiped out Steve. It's wiped out Kev and Jono and Simon. And because of that reason, our lowly apprentice is here preaching to you today. Steve Driscoll wrote this talk, so keep that in mind when I talk about my two-year-old son (laughs) and my sister's guinea pig. (laughs) Today we're going to study the middle of Galatians 3. Last week we did the outer frame, and this week we're spending time on verses 15 to 26. So let's pray for God's help as we read his word. Please pray with me. Dear God, please give me clarity to speak and give us clarity to understand your Old Testament, your law, and our lives. Amen. Well, it's important that you understand your history. Back when I was young, <laughs> you can guess how old Steve is later. Back when I was young, they used to teach history in school. You know, The Western world has been coming to grips with many aspects of our history that we thought we knew about. See, the history wars rage on the questions of colonialism, the nature of the invasion of Australia, the stolen generation. America has history wars of its own, about the Civil War, slavery, the character and actions of Christopher Columbus. My own history seems to lead me back to Britain, Ireland and England. I've been to the forced labour camp in Tasmania, where some of my Irish relatives were taken for crime, no more serious than stealing a loaf of bread. It's important that you understand your history. Understanding the past helps you understand the present. And this is true for Christians, and it's true for the church. Galatians 3, it dives into some of the most important and controversial historical issues that the church needs to straighten out. See, God, he made two big deals. He made a deal with Abraham and with Moses. But how do these two deals or covenants fit together? What was the purpose of the law that he gave to Moses, the rules and regulations of Leviticus and the Sabbath? Why did God make a promise to Abraham, an unconditional promise to him, but then bring about a load of rules and regulations later with Moses is this law still operating do christians need to obey the law today or is it irrelevant you know few issues confuse christians more than the issue of the law if you're a christian do you obey the old testament law if not why not do you play sport or work on a sunday if not why not some of some new testament passages Make it sound like Christians should be obeying the Old Testament law. Read some of these on the screen. Matthew 5. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth has passed away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Romans 3. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Romans 7. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. These Bible passages, they make it sound like Christians should obey the Old Testament law. All 613 of them. Laws about when you eat, who you should eat with, what you should eat, what you should wear, how you should sow your food, and how you should treat your animals. But other passages in the New Testament, they make it sound like the law has been abolished. Romans 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 6, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Hebrew 7, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. It's all a bit confusing, isn't it? The law is abolished. Is it holy, or is it cursed? Sorry. Galatians, it introduces us to the topic of the law in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, in verse 15, six times it's repeated that Christians are justified by believing, by faith, and not by works of the law. In verse 19, it says that Christians have died to the law. And in chapter 3, verse 10, it adds that anyone who relies on the law for salvation is under a curse. It says that no one is justified by the works of the law, See, the New Testament, it's it's consistent. And so we need to read it and understand how these things fit together. There's three points today on your outline. Point one, the deal with Abraham. Point two, the point of the law. And point three, the place of the law. So as we go today, keep Galatians 3 open up in front of you. And we're going to go through verse by verse. Point one, the deal with Abraham. Look at, your, look at your verses. Verse 15, Galatians 3 says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. See, back in Genesis 12, God, right at the beginning of the Bible, made a deal or a covenant with this wandering Iraqi family led by Abraham. And if any of you own a mobile phone, you'll know that you can't change deals or cancel deals with a mobile phone company. See, God, He promised Abraham that it was through His offspring that the whole world would be blessed. This was the deal. You can't change it. And in verse 16 says, And the promise was to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. See, in Hebrew and Greek, the words offspring can either be singular or plural. There's words like this in English. Sheep, deer, Aircraft, they don't have a plural form. A thousand sheep are still sheep. So the word offspring in Hebrew and Greek, it's, it's like that. It's the same whether it's singular or plural. And so God, he actually chose to use that word. And he chose to leave some ambiguity there. Is it one offspring or many? Now here's a tip for your biblical studies. If you're trying to understand this passage, I commend to you one resource that is really helpful <coughs> Shrek. See, <laughs> so in Shrek, there's this beautiful princess Fiona, and every night she transforms into an ogre, and she's been cursed, and she's been told that when she finds true love and has that kiss, then she will be transformed into her final form forever. Now she thinks. That she's going to turn into a human forever. But she falls in love with an ogre, Shrek, and at her true love's first kiss, she turns into an ogre forever. The ambiguity was always there. See, the covenant, it never specified what her true love's form was. And in the same way, God chose to use a word that's the same plural and singular. The ambiguity was always there in the covenant. When you're making a deal, whether you're a property lawyer, which maybe some of you will become, or a witch, like in Shrek, or God Himself, you pay close attention to the choice of words. Paul points back at the promise to Abraham and his offspring, and he says, This offspring is singular. Jesus, that promise to bless the whole world by Abraham's offspring, is talking about Jesus. Now, that might not be what you first thought, but God's plans often aren't what you expect. Uh, Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Imagine, imagine I offered you a coffee. I said, I'm going to buy you a coffee. And then, 430 years later, I added 613 rules and regulations concerning your eligibility to claim the coffee. How would you feel? What begun as an unconditional promise, I'll buy you a coffee, has turned into a conditional agreement. You know, some people do this. They add conditions after the fact. But when people do this, we don't think of them too highly. Imagine you made a deal with a bank, and then later on, they added 613 new conditions and fees and rules. You wouldn't think too highly of this bank. See, the promise to Abraham, it came 430 years before the law at Mount Sinai to Moses. It's a huge gap. It's like me promising you a coffee in 1592, and then in 2022, adding terms and conditions as to whether I'll give you the coffee or not. But the law the law cannot constrain the promise that came first. Abraham came before Moses. You know, if some of you teach Sunday school, teach Abraham. Teach the promises. Don't just teach the law. See, the high point of the Old Testament, it's not the law. It's the promises that God gives to Abraham. John 1 verse 17 says, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth is a promise that's greater than the law. Now, Paul had a third argument here which is about the nature of a promise. He says in verse 18, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. See, a promise is grace specified. Grace is a wonderful Christian word. It means God's generosity, his kindness, his undeserved favor for his people. A promise specifies grace, something you don't deserve. My son is two years old at the moment, and he incurs me a lot of expenses. <laughs> but I don't charge him rent. My son eats a lot, but I don't charge him for, for food. We pour endless time into him, and he can't give much back. Is my relationship with my son grace or a trade? It's not a trade between he and me. It's grace. And it's a promise that specifies grace. See, God's grace to Abraham is a promise. It's grace in the form of a promise. And the whole nature of a promise is that it's corrupted if you turn it into a trade. You know, it would be wrong... If when my son turned 18, I said, you've got to pay me $400,000, give or take inflation, for all the costs that it cost me when you were growing up. A promise, if you earn it, is not grace. It's not a promise. It's just a transaction. See, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes By a promise. So we've seen God's deal. God's deal with Abraham. A precise promise that came long before the law. A precise promise that specifies God's grace. And it was a promise that you should love and treasure. In Abraham's promise, in Abraham's offspring, God promised to bless the whole world. People who had turned against God. Israel people who had rejected God and turned against Him and turned this world into a mess of war, of hatred, of gossip, of envy. God looked down on those people and He gave them a grace-specified promise. And that promise includes you. You can be blessed if you come to Abraham's offspring, Jesus. Who offers blessing to the whole world. Will you take God's promise and trust it? Think about history is not just academic. No history is academic. Because our past, it sweeps up into the present. God's promises are forever. And they're for you. If you make Jesus your blessing. So that's the deal with Abraham. And at this point, you might be having a bit of a low view of the law. And I want to say to you that if you've been listening, if your view of the law has been somewhat undermined, good. If at the start, but if you start thinking that the law was a mistake, or that it has been corrupted or flawed in any way, well, that's wrong. So we're up to point two, the point of the law. You know, I think the recipients of Paul's letters, it often started with them having a too high view of the law. And then Paul, uh, he smashed down their view of the law like in Romans and Galatians. But sometimes the churches would swing the other way and think that the law was a mistake or hate the law. But this isn't right either. And this is the question that naturally follows. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come, to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Was the law a mistake? No. It was added because of transgression. Now that's a bit confusing, so I'm going to give you one minute around your tables to think about what this means. What does it mean that the law was added because of transgression? And don't worry about the angels just yet. You've got one minute, so chat on your tables. Alright, that's enough time. Who, who has an answer? Who has a thought? Go for it, Naris? Yeah, the purpose of the law is according to this question, to reveal our house and who we are because we can't come Throughout the Old Testament, we see that people have failed to obey one, law. Mm. Yep, great, thanks, Nara. So maybe the law is introduced to show how sinful we are. Maybe that's the reason. Any other thoughts? Maybe it restrains sin. Keep yep. it under check. Okay, so maybe maybe the law is introduced to restrain sin, keep it under check. Really helpful. The passage says that the law was added because of transgressions. See, the law, it's a response to transgressions. If there was no sin, there would be no law. The law came in to restrain sin. We've been minding my sister's guinea pigs recently. (laughs) Truly awful animal, the guinea pig. Take that up with Steve. I'm just making it clear I'm reading Steve's notes. I think Noah could have left them out of the ark. <laughs> Sorry, we're full. It was you or the giraffes. <laughs> Guinea pigs, they, they don't understand road rules and they don't understand spiders. So we stuck a cage over them. And the cage restrained them. It kept the guinea pigs in one place, safe. Yet even when I come home and the grass under the cage was dead, and there was a quantity of poop in the cage that defied the laws of thermodynamics, (laughs) they had turned a patch of my lovely lawn into a sewer. But at least I had a cage, because that meant they weren't on my bed. The law doesn't solve sin. It restrains sin. It boxes it up a bit. And you can see how restri- how sin is restrained if you read the Old Testament with Israel. They're not particularly restrained, but you wouldn't want to see the alternative. See, so you don't solve problems of the heart with a law. And you can't dam the ocean with sand. The best you can do is divert a bit of water. See, the failure isn't the fault of God's law, just like I don't blame the cage for the guinea pigs. The fault doesn't lie with Moses. It lies with the human heart and with the guinea pigs' souls. (laughs) The most complex litigation in our society concerns the game handball. Handball at any primary school will involve a good 100 to 1,000 laws. If you go watch a game of kids playing handball, they'll yell out first, second and third arguments before the ball is served. Good service, no return, fairsies, no spin. And yet even with all of these rules in place, if you watch a game, it seems like they spend half the time arguing about the laws and trying to find loopholes so they don't get out. A friend teaches criminology at ANU. And he talks to people about the project of criminology as the business of making evil people useful evil people. You don't transform the heart. You divert a bit of water. See, the law, it won't save anyone. And it was added until the offspring should come. Until Jesus came. See, the law was added to restrain sin until Jesus came. And this means that if you're asking, what is the purpose of the law, you're asking the wrong question. The right question is, what was the purpose of the law? And the answer is to restrain Israel until Jesus came. All right, we're up to some tricky verses, so follow along closely from verse 19. Look at the page, verse 19. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Did you know that someone tried to attempt all the explanations of this verse, and they think they found 300 different attempts to explain this one? So if you find it hard, or people in your Bible study disagree with each other, good, that's probably right. Here's my understanding. The deal with Abraham was simple. It was a two-party deal. God is one, and he spoke directly to Abraham. Christians believe that there is one God in three persons, and so it's a one, a two-party deal, God and Abraham. But when the law came through Moses via angels to Israel, it's a four-party deal. God, Moses, angels, Israel. The direct deal between God and Abraham is superior than the four-part deal between God, Moses, angels, and Israel. The promise to Abraham was God's direct word. But if you're well-read, you might be wondering why Paul thinks angels gave the law to Moses. The account of the giving of the law in Exodus, it doesn't contain any angels. If so, good thought. Ask it in question time but ask it next week when Steve's back. The big idea. In legal terms, if you were to compare the law and the promise, the promise is superior. The promise is God's direct word. No mediators. Read verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. See, the law being given, it was not a mistake. The law served its purpose. But its purpose was never to give life. The cage, it doesn't change the hearts of the guinea pig. But it isn't pointless. Verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned under the coming faith would be revealed. See, one of the purposes of the law, as Nara said before, is to show you how guilty you are. It's like when you sit an exam and you get your mark back, which is against the reality of the rubric. It's then when you see your errors. See, the law, it should have done that to Israel. Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are sons of God through faith. See, the word guardian, it's it's very important in Paul's argument. But it's a concept that we're not very familiar with these days. Children in wealthier homes in the ancient world, they would largely be raised by servants or by slaves. And the law was like this. It was like a guardian or a tutor or a childcare centre for the kids until they had grown up. Now, before, I mentioned a special tool that helps you in your biblical studies I've got another one that I commend to you, and it's the film Batman. Batman has a guardian. His rich parents die, and a butler called Alfred raises Batman. Now, Alfred restrains the worst instincts and guides him. But Alfred doesn't make Bruce Wayne rich. He just guides him towards his inheritance. See, the law was Israel's guardian, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 25, but now that faith has come. We're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Thanks for working hard with those verses with me, and I know it's a bit of a whirlwind, but I want to draw some things together. We're up to point three, the place of the law. Remember that the correct question is not what is the purpose of the law. The correct question is what was the purpose of the law. If you're a Christian, you've died to the law. Now that faith has come, you're not under the guardian anymore. But if that's so, why does Jesus say not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished? Well, I think it's because Jesus is the offspring that accomplished God's promise to Abraham. Why in Romans does Paul say that the law is holy and righteous and good? Because it is. It's not the law's fault. It's Israel's fault. It's the fault of our own human heart. The law is holy. It's what restrains a Christian. So... So what restrains a Christian who lives after the law of Moses? Love, faith, and the spirit. Not the fear of law, but the love of God in your hearts by his spirit. And so if, you're, if you aren't a Christian, if you don't have that spirit, here's what Christianity can offer you. We can offer you commands and laws if you want, and it might restrain some of your worst instincts. And they might put the fear of God into you. But they won't put the love of God into you. If you aren't a Christian and you're sick of the way that you act, the way that you think, the evil in your heart, you don't need a law. You need the offspring. You don't need rules and guidelines, not first and foremost. You need Jesus to die for your sins. And then put his love into your heart by his spirit. If you're a Christian, what is your daily motivation to do good? Is it duty? Is it guilt? Do you drift towards the law? Is the Bible to you a list of do's and do not's? Does it burden you? If so, I'd encourage you. Not rebuke you, I'd encourage you. To let the gospel speak into your guilt. See the law. It says do, do, do. The promise says I will do. And the gospel says it is done. Christians live out joy in thankfulness. That we couldn't do it. But that Jesus did it all. The law came through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, free us from the curse of the law through your Son and give us the joy and love of your Spirit. Amen.